Our gracious Father, our hearts are already overwhelmed as we sing songs that are just full of, um, Lord, just reminders of your great attributes centered on the gospel, the good news of the person and the work of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Thank you for him. Thank you for the reminder this morning as well from our brother Marty, just of so many decades of faithfulness through that ministry, so many who've come to know Christ as Messiah, as Savior through this ministry, Lord, and we're just overwhelmed with the fact that, Lord, you have allowed us to partner with you in some capacity. You could do all of this work on your own, and you've invited us to partner with you. Not only have you called us to yourself and saved us through faith in Jesus Christ, but you've called us to, Lord, be instruments through whom you redeem others and draw others to yourself. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you. You are worthy of our worship, of our adoration. Father, may we do that in spirit and in truth this morning, even as we hear your word and as we apply it to our lives. Lord, help us to be people who remove distractions from ourselves by your grace this morning, that we might hear your word specifically to each of us and to us collectively. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, verses 35 through 37 is our passage this morning. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And if if you're able to stand with me, please do so for the reading of God's Word and in honor of God's Word. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Hear the Word of the Lord. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Ligonier Ministries conducted a survey in 2020 titled The State of Theology, and I think specifically in America, and they asked some key doctrinal questions from these, this panel of people that they surveyed. For example, they asked about the issue of gender identity, and 22% of professing evangelicals answered that question by saying that they think gender identity is a matter of personal choice. Nothing to do with biology or what the Bible says. These are professing evangelicals, mind you. There was also a question about the nature of human beings, about anthropology and human sinfulness. Almost 50%, 46% of professing evangelicals believe that people are good by nature. That they are good by nature. Pretty much denying Romans 3, 10 and following, which says that there is none good, not even one. But most disturbing, the most disturbing question of all was regarding the deity of Christ. Where 30% or more of professing evangelicals, according to this survey, reject the biblical teaching that Jesus is fully God. Of course, He's fully man as well, but They reject the fact that he is the God-man and believe that he was just a man or a great teacher or all of the other um, potential opinions that we've seen even as we've studied through the Gospel of Mark. That's a staggering statistic, isn't it? 
Staggering statistic. While the other answers and other answers that they put forward are serious and sobering. I mean, this last statistic is the most frightening of all. For if Jesus isn't God, then he cannot save people from their sins. I mean, the early church really understood this. It's why the doctrine of the deity of Christ was a huge issue, especially during the first three to four hundred years of church history. There was a guy by the name of Arius who essentially taught that there was a time when the Son and the Holy Spirit, the second and third members of the Trinity, were not. There was a time when they came into existence. Furthermore, and pay attention to this, that the Son, that the Son was similar or like God the Father, but not of the same nature as God the Father. By the way, our present-day JWs and Mormons promote these aberrant views and many others about Jesus. Well, thankfully, the early church rejected Arius' teaching at what is known as the First Ecumenical Council, known as the Council of Nicaea. And they put forward what is known as the Nicene Creed in A.D. 325, which reads like this, and I'm reading only a portion of it. Quote, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through Him all things were made. And it goes on. But this is one of the standard confessions of biblical Christianity, affirming that Jesus is God. He is co-share of the same nature of God as the Father and the Spirit are God. And so, just know, in the early church, the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of Jesus were not secondary or peripheral doctrines or peripheral matters. Because if you get Jesus wrong, you cannot have salvation from your sins. That's not to say we're going to understand all of the wonderful, beautiful intricacies of the glories of Christ. We're going to spend eternity doing that. But what the Bible makes clear is that if you knowingly, willfully reject the claims of Christ concerning who He is, then you cannot be saved. And so therefore, it is not a peripheral, secondary issue, the deity of Christ. It has to do with core gospel doctrine. John who was the last apostle to die. He wrote the book of Revelation sometime around A.D. 90 and passed away sometime after that. Wrote this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 and 23. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Christ means Messiah. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And in that context of 1 John, to deny the Son is to deny His deity, that Jesus is God. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Cannot be more clear. And this is why I think our text this morning, beloved, is especially important for us to look at and consider together. Because here, our Lord Jesus, in a very pinpointed way, will be defending His true identity before His enemies here in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. Now remember where we are in the life of our Lord. 
Recall that this is Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life. Chapters 11 through 16 of Mark, as we've said before, focus on this final week of the Lord Jesus' life. Mark has been moving us by, with words like immediately and the word and, with that language, moving us in the narrative towards Jerusalem where Jesus is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again for sinners such as us. And it's been this Tuesday a day of questions by our Lord's enemies designed to discredit him, designed to entrap him, designed to indict him and eventually get him killed. There's been questions about divorce. There's been questions about taxation and the tension of worshiping God in government. There's been questions about his authority and doing the types of things that Jesus is doing and saying the types of things that he's saying. And the last question that we saw was a very sincere one where a scribe asked Jesus concerning which is the greatest, foremost commandment. And of course, our Lord Jesus answered excellently, didn't he? The greatest commandment is love for God supremely and wholeheartedly. And the second is like it, loving others, loving your neighbor as yourself. And after that brilliant answer, verse 34, if you notice, says that after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. I mean, he shut them down. But now, after all of these questions, it's Jesus now going on the attack, if you will. He's now going to ask them questions. And so this is, a, in essence, a counterpunch on the part of our Lord. And our Lord now asked him a couple of questions himself. And really, this is, if you think of it, this is the, the final conversation with these enemies of such nature, where he's going to defend who he is. This is an evangelistic appeal to them, an invitation to his enemies, the religious leaders in this text. And Jesus wants to get to the heart of the problem, because the heart of the problem for them is their unbelief. They don't believe in his claims concerning who he is, that he is the Messiah. And so as we look at our passage, our Lord Jesus teaches on his true identity who he is, that they might come to believe in him, that they might come to follow him, that they might have eternal hope. Notice how this all begins with a probing question in verse 35. The probing question in verse 35. Jesus began to say, verse 35 says, as he taught in the temple, remember this is most likely the the court of the Gentiles where Jesus is, and he asked, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. Christ, again, means Messiah. And the sense of the question is, how is it that they say he is the son of David and nothing more? That's the sense of the question. In an effort to get these so-called scholars to consider the identity of the Messiah, our Lord asked this probing question to sort of draw them in, to get them to stop and pause and consider who stands before them. And as he asked this probing question, he does so by meeting them on common ground, doesn't he? For any devoted Jew and scribe knew that the Messiah would come from the bloodline of David. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, the great passage about the Davidic covenant, God speaking to David says to him, When your days, David, are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. 
In Isaiah 9 and verse 7, speaking of the Messiah, it says there, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. You can also look up Psalm 89. There's another text that points to the fact that the Messiah is, the, uh, is a descendant of David. Anyone who read their Old Testament knew that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David, that he would be of the bloodline of David. And later on in the New Testament, as the New Testament looks back and tells us, it tells us that Jesus was indeed the son of David on a human level. For example, Romans chapter 1, verse 3. As the Apostle Paul expounds on the gospel of God, he says in Romans 1, 3, that the gospel is concerning his God's son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. That on the human level, he was a son of David. And Paul, writing to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 8, says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. And so both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that the Messiah would come from the bloodline of David. This was well known. The problem was that they didn't go far enough, right? They left the Messiah on a mere human level. To most of them, the Messiah would be of the kingly line of David, a political conqueror. It would bring them deliverance from an oppressive Roman Empire. But they didn't believe him to be God, let alone a savior who would save them from their sins. This was the problem. And so our Lord's probing question is strategic here. He's drawing them in with this inquiry. He's getting them to to realize that their understanding of the one who stands before them, of the Messiah, is deficient and doesn't go far enough. You know, beloved, times haven't changed very much, have they? Times haven't changed very much. People in our society and even people in the church professing Christians, their view of Christ is so small, so deficient, so distorted. What are some of the popular views of Jesus that maybe you've heard over the years? People that maybe you've sought to evangelize and talk to them about Christ and their sin and all of that and being reconciled to God. What are some of those popular, popular views of Christ? For me, I've met people who think of Jesus as this cute, cuddly baby in a manger. And they leave him there, of course, because that's a Jesus that they can handle. That's a Jesus that they can stick in their back pocket, so to speak. He's pleasant. Who doesn't love a cuddly little baby in a manger, right? I met people who view him as a great teacher. What a loving man. What a compassionate man. Great anecdotes for my life. Great wisdom for my life. I love reading the Bible because it's, got, it's full of instruction and full of wisdom for me, but they reject Jesus as the Son of God. Or he's this poor little man who walked around in sandals some 2,000 years ago, very compassionate, did nice things for people 2,000 years ago or so, but they reject the fact that he actually came to deliver them and to rescue them from their sins. Or they think of him as a beaten and broken man, rejected and bleeding on a cross, and they leave him there. 
And never talk about the fact that he rose from the dead and is exalted and he conquered sin and death and he was proven by virtue of the resurrection to be the very Son of God, just like he said he was. You don't believe in him. You know why people like this kind of Jesus? Because this is a Jesus that has no pertinence for their lives. This is a Jesus that they don't have to be accountable to. They've diminished Jesus like this because people can then be indifferent to them and they could care less who he claimed to be or how he calls them to live. That's why they paint up this portrait of Jesus, even after being told the truth. But beloved, I'm here to tell you this morning that who you believe Jesus to be is the single greatest question that you will ever answer. And there is no neutral to that question. There is no neutrality. You don't have the luxury of being indifferent to that question and how you answer it. C.S. Lewis wrote about this insightfully a while back. And he wrote this concerning the claims of Christ. Listen to this, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claims to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, Or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his his being a great moral human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. See what he's saying? You don't have the luxury given the claims of Christ, of being neutral about Jesus. I mean, hear his claims. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life, the only one who can satisfy. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Who says that? Who claims such things? And see his miracles, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, which especially focuses on the, on the unrivaled power of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark. Miracle after miracle where he defied the laws of nature. He walked on water. He turned water into the best kind of wine. Wine like you've never tasted in your life. He calmed storms. He cast out demons, legions out of people. I mean, ten strong men couldn't hold one demon-possessed person down. And Jesus, by the word of his power, cast out demons out of people. And then he healed people, all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases. Definitively and instantaneously, people were healed. What unrivaled power. Hear his claims. See his power. See his great miracles and his great works. He is the Son of God. That's who he is. 
He's unrivaled in power, unmatched in his claims. And Jesus is seeking, you understand, that his enemies here would open their eyes to see him for who he is, who is standing before them, that if they believed in him as the long-awaited Messiah, he could give them hope. He could, he could die for their sins on the cross if they would trust in him. So how's he going to do it? How's he going to do this? Notice secondly, or consider secondly, the prominent Scripture. The prominent Scripture in verse 36. So Jesus first reels them in through this engaging, probing question. But as he always does, he goes to his authority, doesn't he? And his authority is Holy Scripture. Boy, we've seen this again and again and again in the life of our Lord Jesus. He is always most concerned with his hearers knowing what God says and what God means by what the Scriptures say. Always concerned about that. And here again, quoting the quoting Holy Scripture. Now keep in mind that Matthew twenty two forty two, which is the parallel account to this particular account, says that they actually answered Jesus' first question. They answered Jesus' initial question with the words, the son of David. And the implication is, He's the son of David and nothing more. That the Messiah would be the son of David and nothing more. They've answered this. Mark doesn't record that, but Matthew twenty-two forty-two does. And Jesus, in response to that now, goes to Scripture in verse 36, if you notice. And he says, David himself said in the Holy Spirit. Now, stop right there. These people know who David is. These people understand that he's the greatest of Israel's kings, the revered King David. I mean, when King David speaks or is quoted, they listen as Jewish people, especially these religious leaders. And so the witness of David is important. But watch this. The greater point that Jesus wants to make is who David spoke on behalf of. Namely, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 36. Jesus adds that, the king, that king David wrote, In the Holy Spirit. In other words, these were not merely human words, Davidic words, but ultimately divine words, the very words of God. That's what Jesus is most concerned about here. And what did David say in, in the Holy Spirit? Verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Hmm. What's going on here? What's the scripture all about that Jesus quotes here? Well, he's quoting, Jesus references here, Psalm 110, verse 1. And I want you to go there to Psalm 110. One of my favorite psalms in all of the Bible. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 falls into the category what we call a messianic psalm, a messianic psalm, a psalm speaking of the future coming of the Messiah. But what I want you to know is that Psalm 110 isn't just any messianic psalm. You might say it's the greatest messianic psalm of them all. It is the heavyweight, if you will, of the messianic psalms. Why do I say this? Well, first of all, because Psalm 110 and verse 1 is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. That's very key. And in addition, the psalm is directly or indirectly referenced or alluded to some 27 times in the New Testament. And rightly so that this is such a prominent psalm. 
There are so many amazing things said about the Messiah in Psalm 110. And by the way, a few, about three summers ago, I think, we did a summer series on the Psalms, if you remember. And I preached a message on Psalm 110, if you're interested in looking into this more extensively. But for starters, notice in verse 1, that verse 1 is specifically what Jesus quotes back in Mark chapter 12, verse 36. And what you have here in this psalm is David recording a conversation between the first and second persons of the Godhead. It's an inter-Trinitarian conversation, if you will. And David records this. A conversation between God the Father and the Son of God. God the Son. And so David narrates what he hears in verse 1. Look at it. The Lord says to my Lord. Literally, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, as we've seen before. Yahweh says to my Adonai, capital L, little O-R-D. Yahweh says to my Adonai. Here are two different names in verse 1. Differentiating between God the Father, Yahweh, And God the Son, Adonai, in this context. And what does God the Father say to God the Son? Verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's beautiful. The Father says to the Son, sit on the highest place of prominence next to me until I subdue all of your enemies, Son. You ask, when did the Father say this to the Son, Pastor Kempis? Well, this psalm, Psalm 110, is written about a thousand years before our Mark 12 text, which is foretelling this psalm what will happen some 1,000 years later after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, according to Acts chapter 1. Amazing. It will be after Jesus rises and Jesus ascends that God the Father will speak these words to his Son, is what the psalm is saying and he did indeed do that. Hebrews 1.3 says that after Jesus had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. At the right hand of his Father. And so what's the point that Psalm 110 is making? That this future Messiah will have the ultimate exalted status and he isn't just another human king, Right? He's someone greater than that. He can't be a mere man, another human king, another physical king after the lineage of David. He's someone greater than that. Please notice this. According to verses 1 through 3, we only have time to summarize some of this. But according to verses 1 through 3, the Messiah will be an undisputed king. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Yahweh, will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. All that verses 2 and 3 are saying in poetic fashion is that this unrivaled king will have an innumerable army of holy, redeemed subjects. You know who those people are? Us. We're included in there, if you put your faith in Christ. So he's an undisputed king. And not only that, but according to verse 4, the Messiah will be a unique high priest. And we don't have time to unpack this, but Hebrews 7 speaks of this unique Melchizedek, 
A king who, who then he, he says, like Melchizedek, Jesus, the ultimate high priest, will live perpetually as a high priest. He will be unlike any other common high priest. To speak of the preeminence of the priesthood of Jesus. And so verse 4 speaks of the Messiah as, an undis, as a, a unique high priest like no other, the incomparable high priest. And then verses 5 through 7, the Messiah will be the ultimate warrior. Look at these verses. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I mean, this is like the the battle cry of the Messiah here in verses 5 through 7. That this Messiah king will be a conquering warrior who will shatter his enemies. There is no great ruler, past, present, or future, who could ever stand before this Messiah. He is the ultimate warrior, this, this Messiah. And so, this is quite the picture, isn't it, of this one. And Jesus' point is, how could that be speaking of a mere human king? Notice, if, how could this one be an undisputed king, a unique high priest, an ultimate warrior? There's no way that any human king would be referred to that way, let alone by King David, referred to as my Lord. He's someone greater. Boy, this, is, this portrait of Christ is a far cry from the wimpy Jesus of our culture, isn't it? Wow. You see the reason why Jesus goes to Psalm 110 to get these so-called scholars to realize that if that psalm is speaking of the Messiah, then the Messiah is so much more than a mere man because those things could not apply to another common man, let alone a human king. This is why the early church in Acts knew this. They preached an exalted Christ, an exalted Messiah. Go with me to Acts chapter 2 to see this. Acts chapter 2. To see the preaching of the early church concerning Jesus, the Messiah. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Preaching about Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, the apostle Peter preaches, But God raised him up again, namely Jesus, the Messiah, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then look down in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this, which you both see and hear. And He's speaking of the Holy Spirit there. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but He Himself says, David Himself says, and here's a quotation of Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, at the, at the center, at the core of the preaching of the early church was the good news concerning the person and the work of Christ. Not only of a Messiah who was crucified to pay for sins, but one risen, ascended, and exalted to the right hand of the Father and soon to return to judge the living and the dead. That's the King. That's the Jesus that we need to be preaching, beloved. The whole Christ, if you will. And I don't know about you. But knowing the greatness of my Savior, that He is the God-man, 
gives me greater and stronger faith in the face of the challenges that we face in our society today, doesn't it? There's no greater advice that I can give you from my own experience and from the experience of people godlier than me to living life with victory in the light of everything that we see than for our view of King Jesus to be heightened, beloved, to be elevated. So that the things that we see in our society, all of these atrocities are dim in the light of the glory of the light of Christ. Amen? And as I gaze upon the glory of Christ, I derive encouragement. I derive courage and boldness to not live life defeated. To not live life enslaved to my sins. To not live life fearful of the things I'm seeing happening around me. Too many people are living so fearful, right? Too many of us are scared of sickness. Scared of losing our freedoms. Scared of losing our democracy, which would include our security that we've taken for granted, our safety. Too many of us are living with so many fears. Fear of financial lack. Fear of death. Beloved, listen. This world is not our world. We have a sovereign ruler and he's returning to end all of this. All of it. You name it. Whatever other trials and difficulties and afflictions you've had, put, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We know how the story ends. The latter part of Psalm 110 tells us that one day, future, this Messiah, listen, wins. He wins. He's returning to deliver the final death blow. It's just a matter of time. The Lord is not slow about His promise. He's wishing for no one to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what it's all about right now. The Great Commission. But we know who's going to come and deliver the final death blow. Our risen, exalted Savior. He's coming back. And for those who've trusted in Him, we will reign with Him. Amen? Now, for those of you who don't know Jesus, hear me, and are not following Him, You've not trusted in the Messiah. You have a lot to fear. And the least of your worries and your fears is anything that can happen to you in this world or anything that can be taken away from you in this country. Remember what Jesus said? What does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and forfeit his or her soul? And what will you give in exchange for your soul? Answer, nothing. Nothing. What happens after death is your greatest concern if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. If you have not confessed Him as Lord, one day beyond this earth, you're going to face the Son of God, the God-man, the exalted Christ. And on that day, the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where everything is headed. This is how the story ends. And listen to me. You can either choose to confess Jesus as Lord now, embracing His loving, gracious, free offer of forgiveness by faith, or you will be forced to confess Him as Lord on that day of judgment and be ushered into eternal suffering 
and a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth called hell. A place where there will be no more opportunity to repent. No more opportunity to trust Christ and be reconciled to your Maker. Please don't wait for that day. The good news today is that a loving and gracious God has sent His beloved Son into the world that you may not be condemned, that you may be forgiven, that you may be reconciled, that you may be granted eternal life. Repent and believe in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in Him. Acknowledge and confess that you're a sinner who cannot save yourself. Put your trust in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has paid for your sins and taken your punishment on the cross and was risen and exalted, conquering sin and death. Proven to be the God-man by virtue of His resurrection. Put your trust in Him this morning. Don't wait. And so you see, I believe that this was our Lord's final appeal final invitation of this nature to these religious leaders. And by quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, Jesus is telling these scribes and the crowds, the great multitudes who are watching there, put your thinking caps on. Pause to think about what the Scripture says about who is standing before you, lest you miss me. For if they don't believe Him to be God... If they don't believe that He's the God-man, then He can't save them from their sins. Because listen to me, you cannot be wrong about Christology, about the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God, and reject that knowingly and be saved from your sins. Only one who is both God and man qualifies to be the Savior of the world, and His name is Jesus. He alone exclusively. Jesus knows this. And so notice that he presses the issue even further with another question. Consider third, the pressing implication. The pressing implication in verse 37. Look there. David himself, that's emphatic, David himself calls him Lord. Jesus is pressing the issue here. And in essence, what he's saying is, if your infamous King David himself, emphatically, David himself called him Lord, In what sense is he his son? And the idea there, the implication is, in what sense is he a mere human son of David and nothing more? Jesus is pressing the issue here because it's got eternal ramifications for these religious leaders and for the multitudes if they don't get this, if they don't understand this. Your problem is you don't go far enough in understanding who the Messiah is. Furthermore, why would David, an Israelite king, is the point our Lord is making. The greatest of kings refer to His Son as Lord, as Kurios, Lord, Master, Sovereign, Ruler. Why would King David do that? No Hebrew father, let alone a Hebrew king, will refer to one of his physical sons as Lord, as Master, in this context as Sovereign Ruler. Now why is Jesus pressing this issue? Why is He doing this? Why is he belaboring the point? Why is his deity, his lordship, such a pressing issue for Jesus again? Because if you don't get Jesus right, there is no salvation from your sins. Only one who is fully man, the blameless, spotless lamb, Jesus Christ, can die for sins. But only one who is also fully God, eternal, infinite, can sufficiently pay for an endless array, an infinite number of sins for all of humanity. 
Only one who is the God-man can do this. Jesus had to be fully God in order to die for sins and pay for sins. And beloved, everything we've seen in Mark, Jesus' amazing words and his amazing works, all of these things that we've seen in Mark have been authenticating signs to point to the fact that Jesus is God, just as the rest of the Bible says that he is God. John 1.1, you know the verse. In the beginning was the Word, the Word in this context, speaking of the eternal Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He is a person distinct from God the Father. And the Word was who? God. Co-share of the same essence, being, nature as the Father is the Son. He is God. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 refers to Jesus as our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same with Titus 2.13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And the Jews knew exactly that this is who he claimed to be. It's why in John 5.18, it says that they were seeking to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. They knew exactly who he was claiming to be. That he is God. The crowds, by the way, love all of this, don't they? Look at verse 37. It says, And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. We might look at that and think, wow, that's, that's a great positive response from the crowds. We know better, don't we? From the Gospel of Mark. It was a superficial response at best. The crowds are fickle. They simply love the show. They love the, the fact that their pompous religious leaders have been put in their place. But the truth is that most of these in this large crowd did not believe in Jesus nor followed him. That's the problem. This too is a lesson for us, isn't it? This is a lesson for us. Like every reference we've seen in Mark, brothers and sisters, to the watching multitudes. Like every reference we've seen to alluding to the multitudes and their response and their reaction to Jesus and his interaction with the, with the uh, religious leaders. Mark mentions the reaction of the multitudes as a way to ask the reader to ask the audience the question, what about you, reader? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and have you, reader and audience, repented of your sins and put your trust in Him? That's the question we should be asking ourselves in a very pinpointed way, in personal way. Have you turned from your sins and put your trust in Christ, believing that He is the Messiah, that He is the God-man, that He is the one who's paid for your sins on the cross? Have you come to trust in Him? Or will you be counted among those in the massive crowd who've watched, heard, and witnessed the words and works of Christ and continually rejected Him? That is the question for us. Now, for those of us who have trusted in our Lord and our exalted Christ, I think there's some wonderful implications for us as we wrap this up. All right, let me give them to you, four of them, okay? If Jesus, our Lord, is God, and we've come to trust Him, then the implication for us, first and foremost, should be that we should worship Him as our highest priority, right? We should worship Him as our highest priority. Remember what Jesus said is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and 
strength. We should worship him. Paul worshiped Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, Paul continually, right? Just to take one author of Scripture as an example. Whenever he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have you read continually in his epistles how many times he bursts forth into praise and adoration as he's contemplating the wonder and the glories of the gospel? He worships. He worships. And Revelation 5.13 says that in heaven there will be myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. Hear me, if the Lamb of God will be forever worshipped in heaven, beloved, shouldn't it begin in the here and now on earth? In our hearts? And in our lives, from our lips, and in our obedience, being a loving, grateful obedience out of a heart of worship and adoration for what God has done through Jesus. Worship Him as your highest priority if you believe that He's God. We should secondly have as our greatest ambition to know Him. To know Him. If you believe that Jesus is God, then your greatest ambition should be to know Him. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that his greatest goal in life is that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings that I may be conformed to Christ's death. My greatest aim is to forget about the past, all of my wretched past, and to know Jesus my Lord. That is my greatest passion, my greatest ambition in life, Paul says. We should be like Mary in Luke 10 who chose the one thing necessary and that was to sit at the feet of Jesus listening to His Word, right? At that moment, there was nothing more important that took priority above devotion to Christ for this young woman, Mary. She chose the right thing, listening to the words of Christ. Third, we should tell others about Him. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, If you believe that Jesus is God, then you should tell other people about him. We just heard from our brother earlier. He has spent his life doing that and encouraging people to reach out to the Jewish people. Why? Because it's the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the God-man and he is their hope. How much more us? Because Jesus is, is God, beloved. We should all the more be about fulfilling the Great Commission. Those were the last instructions that Jesus gave to us as the church. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, said the Lord Jesus. Go therefore and what? And what, beloved? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. If we believe believe Jesus to be the God-man, we should be devoting ourselves to evangelism, devoting ourselves to edification, to building up the current disciples, building one another up so that we become like Jesus, leading to the exaltation of Christ. That's the Great Commission. Evangelism, edification, leading to the exaltation, the elevating, the making much of Jesus as God's church here in this world as we anticipate the King's return, right? That's our mission. Finally, since Jesus is God, then we should live joyfully with hope. Boy, this is pertinent for us right now, isn't it? If Jesus is God, then we should live joyfully with hope. 
Nothing that happens in this world, beloved, in the light of what Christ has done, can take away God's promises from you if you've trusted in Jesus. Nothing. No ruler, no government, no foreign government, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, which means not liable to corruption, which is undefiled, means unable to be polluted or stained by evil and will not fade away, which means unable to decay or to wither. That's our inheritance because of Christ. Nothing in this world that takes place in your life, no trial, you fill in the blank. Nothing, nothing, nothing can rob you of the inheritance that has already been procured for you by virtue of the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen? He says, reserved in heaven for you this inheritance. Nothing can take that away from us. I love that. We can live joyfully by the grace of God with hope. Right, beloved? All of this is possible because of the Lord Jesus, the God-man, arisen, ascended, exalted, and returning King. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you for your wonderful grace and the wonderful reminder even this morning of the nature of your Son in this wonderful text that He is fully man and fully God and that He alone qualifies to be Savior of the world. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have found in Him. Thank You that He left His throne above to live the life that we should live but can never live, a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling all righteousness, that He died in our place to pay for our sins, that He rose from the dead proving that His claims that He is the God-man were true, that He is the Son of God and conquered sin and death by virtue of His glorious resurrection. Thank you that he's ascended. Thank you that he's exalted. Help us to proclaim this exalted, victorious king to a world that is desperately needing to hear about hope. Not a hope that is earthly, but a hope that is eternal. And that hope is only found in Christ. Help us to be about fulfilling the Great Commission, our Heavenly Father. Help us to do that by your grace and the power of your Spirit all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.